Welcome to the Benito Juarez Experience. I am Juan Navarro Rivera, along with Luciano Gonzalez. Today we have a show that explores how society at large expects all Latinx Americans to be Catholic and how non-Catholic Latinx people negotiate their identity as an ethnic minority in the country and as a religious minority within their own community. And I think this is a subject that both of us uh, care a lot. I remember that article you wrote a couple of months ago on Latino religious minorities. And, and what was your idea behind that article? Uh, my idea behind the article where I shed light on Latinos who weren't Catholic and many of whom, all of whom weren't Christian, was to dismantle notions that Latinos are universally Christian. Because to me, that's a very frustrating stereotype. And frankly, even Christian Latinos and Latinos and Latinx individuals find that a bit frustrating because it inhibits conversations that we can have about religion with religious leaders. And it also erases people who aren't Christian independent of their religion, including many theists. That article that you wrote, gave me the idea for this show, and also an old story from four years ago in NPR Chicago, WBEC. They did a story on Latino secularism, the growth of Latino secularism, and they interviewed Jose Alvarado, who is the, the dear leader of the uh, Latino Chicago atheist. And basically the headline was Latinos leaving their Catholic faith and their culture behind. So basically equating being Catholic with all of Latino culture. And so to discuss this particular subject today, we have a special guest. And it is my pleasure to introduce Professor Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, who is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Azusa Pacific University in California. She is the author of the award-winning book, Latino Pentecostal Identity, Evangelical Faith, Self, and Society, which was published by Columbia University Press. She has authored more than a dozen articles and book chapters on the subject of Latino Pentecostalism and has served as media expert for outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and On Being with Krista Tippett, and has served as an expert on Latino religious history for the PBS series in America. And it's one of my favorite scholars to follow on Twitter as well, and, and someone who has been very influential in my own work on Latino identity. So, Professor Sanchez-Walsh, welcome to the Benito Juarez experience. Thanks for having me. The first question I, I have is, given your expertise on, on Latinx uh, and Latino non-Catholic identity, particularly Pentecostals, how you got interested in the subject, and, and what have you find, found of how particularly Pentecostal Latinos, who are one of the, probably the largest non-Catholic group uh, of Christians in, in the community, navigate their dual identity as an ethnic minority in the country and as a religious minority within uh, the Latino community? Yeah, what got me interested in the subject is this was... Uh the dissertation, and you know anything about that? That that usually follows you forever. You just can't uh, you can't unhit yourself from that that easily. Um, I've had some relatives 
who distant relatives and cousins, second cousins, who had converted, uh, who in the circles of our family, who was, I would argue, or I would say it's kind of culturally Catholic, mostly, um, though I do have a couple of priests in there somewhere, a couple of nuns uh, hanging out there, but uh, we had wondered what they had converted to. And all we knew is that it was very intense. You know, so we use these words like intense, uh, hardcore, uh, they're all Christian now. We don't know what that means. So we kind of, we didn't have a vocabulary to explain what their brand of, we didn't even know what it was, to be honest with you. This was years ago. And then so digging for a dissertation topic, I thought this would be interesting, is to look at how, starting with my own family and figuring out where they, how they navigated this, these religious expressions, what it meant. And whether you could say that somebody was Catholic, became Catholic, when did they leave, what does that mean, what does it mean to be Pentecostal, what does it mean to be Latino, Latina, all of that. All of these kind of various levels and, and you know, when you learn early on in graduate school that all of these identities are very fluid. And uh, that made sense to me because it, we never viewed them as Pentecostal or whatever. We, uh, those of us who... who understood what that was, kind of viewed them as they would call themselves as an old guard term, born again. And we knew that uh, they took their faith seriously. But other than that, we never bothered. It was only until I got into the research part that I started asking those questions about identity, religious identity, and how it interplays with their own ethnic, their own ethnic identity of, of uh, what they viewed as, I wanted them to explain themselves and how they found themselves in these movements. So... I wanted to ask you, how do you think, uh, as someone who's done research into this, could you tell us a little bit about what you think, uh, very briefly, maybe the most interesting thing that you think distinguishes Latino, Latina, and Latinx people who are Pentecostal from Latino people who are Catholic? Yeah, well, there's um, three, basic, three basic things. Uh, that I've whittled it down to three things. Um, the intensity of worship for Latino Pentecostals, uh, by and large, whether through anecdotal evidence or research or long-term uh, study of these groups, basically they're there because of the worship. The intensity of worship, the ecstatic nature of the religion of Pentecostalism, uh, by far just exceeds what um, many Latinos, religious Latinos view as a rather staid, formulaic, liturgical approach in the Catholic Church. So they find uh, an ease, a, an, a, a, um, a very personalized worship to be very inviting, very inviting. So the second thing is that these are small churches, by and large. Most Latino Pentecostal churches do not have more than 75 people. Uh, most Latino Catholic churches, Catholic masses, uh, they're huge. If you've ever been to any area, you know people who've been there. They're, they could be five, six, seven hundred some in some larger parishes, upwards of thousands. Uh, so they're the, you lose yourself in many of these churches. Latino Pentecostal churches allow parishioners to have an intimate experience with their fellow parishioners, with the pastor. The pastor is usually bivocational. It's usually someone who works at this part-time. They haven't gone to school for years and years and years, so there's not that, that educational or theological distance. And then the third is uh, something that uh, I think religious Latinos tap into quite a lot historically has been the sense of piety, the idea that religion makes you a better person, that it keeps you in line, that you need religion to, to get ahead, 
that it cleans up your life or that you, you need it to help you. And that particularly with Protestantism, Pentecostalism, the idea is that this allows for some social mobility. So a lot of stories that I've cataloged over the years about how people were once drinking, uh, smoking, gambling, carousing, and now they're not. And so the, the tangible benefits of becoming Pentecostal are, or should be, at least what is, is what they tell me, is that they save money. They become thrifty. They become homeowners. They become family men and women, uh, better mothers, better fathers, et cetera. So there's some tangible benefits, and those are the three things that I have found kind of overarching is the, the differences. Not that to say the Catholics are not, but when Pentecostals talk to me, that's what they tell me is what distinguishes them from their fellow uh, Christians. You know, that's really interesting. It reminds me of, of, of some scholarship that I've read of Pentecostalism in Latin America as well, uh, in which, you know, a lot of the, and growing up in Puerto Rico, a lot of the ministries are uh, particularly geared toward people with substance abuse problems and that that cleaning process of basically uh, allows people to start saving money. And so this is this decent economic uh, fringe benefit, for lack of a better word, uh, of, of, of these conversions. But also there's this aspect of the way in which you, in, in which you frame the, the different services. Uh, and by I mean service, I mean like worship services. You know, there's, there's a, a more individualistic and more... Uh, intimate experience within, within, yes. uh, within a, a Pentecostal church and a Catholic church. And also there's a, uh, which I have discussions with, with many people over the years, that there's also a very empowering aspect of, of the fact that, you know, it's also an anti-elitist movement to some extent because it's not a, pre it's not a priest that has gone to seminary to that's bring right. the knowledge of God down to you, but you're actually the, kind of very populist kind of uh, worship style. Yeah, very, very much so. I, I, that's, I, that jives with everything that I've seen and read in terms of studying, doing field work, and uh, literature, not only from U.S. Latinos, but Latinos in Latin America, same, very, uh, Latin Americans rather, same um, kind of dynamic in terms of anti-elitist, um, almost veering into an anti-intellectualism. Uh, that uh, well-read, theologically-oriented Latinos somehow lose the fire, if you will. They lose the ability to speak to um, grassroots Pentecostals. So many of these churches actually prefer uh, pastors who, who have not gone to seminary, uh, who have basically just learned it as a trade or learned it as a, as a journeyman under uh, a mentorship of some kind. And so that's, that's there too, the idea that Pentecostalism is best when it's unfiltered through um, what many of them view as very liberalizing theological lenses. I have a question, uh, going, heading back a little bit into identity and uh, probably history. So one of the things I've been talking about from about secular Latino Americans has been mm -hmm. the fact that we have a history and mm -hmm. that we just don't know it, that we need to rescue that history. That we're kind of like a new thing. And, and that's one of the things that I think we, when the 
Pew report on Latino religious change came out. I, I think that was one of the things that made us connect in Twitter that the we were I think so. very yes. disappointed with the with the frame of which like not just secular Latinos but also Pentecostal Latinos and, and Protestant Latinos in general are seen as a new thing. And I would like you to speak a little bit about you know, the history of Pentecostalism in the Latino community, which I think goes back to the founding of, uh, of Pentecostalism, uh, and also, yes. you know, how, how, how aware Pentecostal Latinos are of their own history. Right, right. Yeah, well, um, briefly, the timeline would be uh, Latinos uh, border in the, around the borderlands, if we're talking, have been converting or actively being viewed as converts by uh, Protestant missionaries, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, since the 1840s, 1850s. Out of that, you get kind of a movement towards a more holiness brand of Methodism. Uh, the holiness branches in the late 1880s, 1890s, uh, pursuing converts again in the borderlands. Um, you also get pursuing converts in places in mission fields, really literally mission fields, Hawaii for um, immigrant workers from Puerto Rico and other parts, uh, up, parts of New York, parts of Pennsylvania, but to switch to Pentecostals now, Latinos have been Pentecostal since 1906, and possibly even before then, but those are the earliest counts we can have in terms of the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. But there are early 1913, almost all, they would be called Spanish churches, in the Iglesia de Dios of Cleveland, Tennessee, the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. So you have large groups of Latinos in these churches very early on. So uh, this is not a new movement. That's what frustrates me probably more than anything uh, is the, and religious journalists who you'd think would know better, simply kind of parroting the old stereotype that this is a new thing, these are new people, this is a new phenomenon, where it's not. It's over 100 years old. And to get to your you know, the broader question, which I think is very interesting, you know, secu do secular Latinos have a history? Absolutely. Uh, I think you could start at the beginning of the Chicano Studies movement in the 1960s and obviously further back with uh, intellectual movements coming out of Mexico and, and other places, which were decidedly very secular. Um, and, but it's not viewed that way. They're not viewed as predominantly secular people. They're viewed as political figures, artists. Um, philosophers, there's something else that defines them. Their secularism is not what defines them, and that's part of, I guess, your overall project, or anybody who wants to study this in any depth, is looking at those kind of excavations of what makes them, you know, excavating that secular history of Diego Rivera, of excavating that secular history of some of the philosophical underpinnings of these movements of the early 20th century. That, I think, would be fascinating. I actually wanted to ask you, and you, you bring it up, you mention uh, like a specific example, but for people who are interested in the history of Pentecostal Christians who are also Latinx, do you know of any resources that you would recommend in addition to your own scholarly works? Well, there's, there's um, I've divided it into a couple of things. There's some really good primary resources, if you will, just out of magazines, newspapers that are available from the denominations themselves if you're kind of looking for a, a, a pure kind of primer. There are other works um, that are out there that kind of do really good in terms of the early history of the movement. Um, 
trying to think off the top of my head. Well, Dan Ramirez, a good friend of mine, has just come out with a book called Migrating Faiths, which looks at the oneness movement. And he looks at the early years of the church, and I think he, he stops at about 1960. Uh, and Oneness Pentecostals was kind of a, a, a non-Trinitarian movement, uh, heavily influenced in the, um, uh, the migrant workers, migrant camp workers of California and the borderlands uh, in the turn of the century. Uh, so that would be good. Uh, there's a couple of books here and there, but that his is, is one of the newer ones. I think it just came out early last year. Um, so that, uh, and then a couple of articles. Uh, there was a special issue. It's a bit dated now, but it was pretty good. Um, that kind of was one of the first that looked at Latino religions from the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. I believe it was probably 1999, so that's a bit dated. Um, yeah, so stuff is out there. You just have to kind of look at it, mind the, mind the bibliography, especially Dan's, because it's probably the most recent. There's a lot of good stuff coming, too. There's, a lot, there's some really good promising scholarship that's going to be coming very soon uh, that I think will, will help us. Uh, look even further into kind of the historical trajectory of the movement. So I have a, another question, and it's because, of course, when we talk about, you know, Latinos in the United States, there's certainly that always that connection to Latin America uh, because there's a lot of migration back and forth, and, and uh, sure. but also that now our churches coming from Latin America to do mission work in the United States among immigrant communities here. And I would yes. like to, to you to speak a little bit about you know, that, those transnational experiences and, and, and exchanges and how they influence these identities. Yes, I think the, uh, I believe it's called the reverse missions effect, and I know that there's a debate among sociologists as to whether that's actually valid or not, but I will leave that to the sociologists, <laughs> to the social scientists, because um, a, a lot of it has to do with definition and things like that. But clearly, uh, the first time I think people really started writing about it, looking at it, doing some ethnographic fieldwork, was with Central Americans. Central American, particularly Guatemalan, and, and Salvadoran uh, immigrants, refugees coming up through mostly Los Angeles, uh, Central California, parts of Texas, and eventually up uh, even further into even where you are, uh, Washington, D.C., and trying to revitalize their communities and revitalize churches by bringing a very intense brand of Pentecostalism back with them. Um, a Pentecostalism that they initially forged in very difficult times uh, through... Uh, the warfare, civil war, the uh, civil rights abuses in most of these places. And so I think the intensity factor is much different than your kind of, I think we can't, we haven't talked about this at all, I hope we do at some point, if not now, later on. Uh, the generational effect is I, I, I want to argue that Pentecostalism is generational, is that it, it's very intense in its first generation. It's very intense in its first uh, foray of converts. Um, they, it's so new, and it's so ecstatic, and it's so, you know, it's, it's the answer to all your problems, basically, right? I mean, that's kind of how it's, it's marketed. So um, the Pentecostal churches that you would find here in the United States with more assimilated Latinos, English-speaking Latinos um, that I have visited uh, tend to be fairly staid. Uh, they're evangelical without question, theologically very conservative, but the worship and the things, not as intense. Uh, immigrant Pentecostal churches, Latino churches, very intense. Um, the tambourines, the singing, very loud, very long services. There's an intensity factor to 
based, I would argue, on their experience of where they've come from. So these reverse missions help bring that vitality, that religious, what do you want to call it, effervescence, right, back into these communities. Uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, for them it's good. That's how I would describe it. Um, Another factor that they're also bringing back of late, and the, so I would say the first wave is this intensity coming out of the war in the late 80s and 90s in Central America. What you see now is a push-up from, from um, Latin America, from South America, of the prosperity gospel, and, and the Caribbean, by the way. And so a push-up from, and so it's not so much, uh, the roots of it are not so much in this war, uh, extreme war and poverty and tragedy kind of ethos of Central American Pentecostals, reverse missionaries. But now you see this kind of prosperity gospel reverse mission where they're bringing it from Central America, from Latin America, to the churches here in the United States saying, you could have it all. You can have all of it. And, and without really understanding that this is a U.S. import, right, that this comes from the U.S., it's reworked in Latin America, and then it's sold back to Latin American immigrant churches as, again, the solution to all your problems. The idea that God is some kind of um, works reciprocally, right, and will give you whatever you ask for if you ask for it in faith. So I'm going to talk just a little bit about the reverse mission effect because this is also something that I've experienced. Okay. I was raised in Central America, specifically okay. Honduras and Panama. And I've actually, like, I recently graduated from university, but I've recently become aware that they're gradually becoming more and more reverse missionaries who are slowly making, they're slowly getting older, and as they're getting older, some of them are actually getting opportunities to go to college, whether it's in their home communities in Latin America or, as I've met, in the United States, which is actually very fascinating to me because these are individuals whose first experiences in the United States and oftentimes the way that they learned English was by coming to the United States and being missionaries. Uh, specifically, the group that I've had the most encounters with is the Mormon Church, Church mm -hmm. of Latter-day mm -hmm. Saints, which yes. is very interesting. I haven't read any exact data which talks about them specifically, but it's very fascinating to me because one of my best friends is actually a Peruvian, um, he's a Peruvian Mormon, and he came <laughs> to the United States when he was 15, and then he came back when he was 26. Well, I think that that's, uh, not only do I see that with LDS, you could also make the case that you see it with Jehovah Witnesses. Um, and uh, probably a couple other groups, smaller groups. Um, I, I think it is fascinating. Uh, I think what you're seeing here, especially those that are trained in the United States in seminary, there is Jehovah Witness don't train, so I don't know. I, and I, I don't know enough about the LDS um, theological educational system to comment on that. I, I can comment on the, on the Pentecostals that I've seen. Is One of the fears is that going to a seminary lessons, again, it's this battle. It's an age-old battle of uh, the spirit versus the law, right? So the law is viewed as um, rules, regulations, learning Greek, having to go through the whole theological pro uh, formation process that many Pentecostals view as a waste of time because it, it doesn't help the spirit move the way it should move. There's this kind of freedom of the spirit that is the rhetoric that is used to 
promote the idea that this is all you need. You don't even need anything else. Um, but what happens, and, and this is a project that I would love to do, maybe this is the one that you're describing, you've, worked, you've done some work in, is what happens to those folks who, who do come and go to not Pentecostal seminaries, but they go to the Princetons and the Chicago's and the Yale's and the, the more mainline um, schools, uh, the more prestigious schools. Uh, what I have seen just anecdotally, I don't, you're right, I don't, have a, I don't have data on this either, but uh, anecdotally is that I think the change that they're seeking happens before they, sh they show up there. I think they want more anyway. I think they want to break out of that Bible school kind of thing. Bible school is all you need. That's why they go to Princeton. That's why they, you know, they take up the student loan and go to Chicago because they want that. Um, and they change. You know, they're, they, they're, I think what these schools do is they equip already changing minds to fight off whatever internal pressure or tensions that they may be having with leaving the faith if you will, or leaving the, the fundamentalism behind or the biblicism behind. So theological education works in, at least that's at least one way that I see it working. I don't see it working in breaking people's ethnic identity up too much. I really see it as a way that they use to anchor themselves to liberal Protestantism and away from their Pentecostal upbringing. I don't know if that makes sense in what you've seen, but that's kind of how I've seen theological education work. The, the people that I've met specifically that I've had face-to-face -face encounters with and had the opportunity to discuss theology and history and politics with stayed whatever specific sex they were before. So it's interesting to me that that's the way that you see it. And I understand you're probably correct in terms of statistics. It's just that that's the level of experience that I've had. These are people right, who right. came here ready, they came here well-versed in their religion, and they came mm -hmm. here and they met, originally when they came to preach and proselytize, they came and they witnessed, the way that they worded it to me when they were talking about their experiences was they, mm -hmm. they witnessed lazy Christianity, which is something that yes, I agree yes. with, and yes. <laughs> that's the thing <laughs> that caused me to leave Christianity behind as, Understood. because I wasn't born an atheist. Okay. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I, I've, I've seen that. I've, I've seen that, I would say, in, um, we're probably just talking about different institutions. I was thinking about something different, but I see that among the people who go to the seminary that is part of, of our school, for example. Uh, these are folks from Latin America. Uh, we have a few Cubans, uh, a couple of Puerto Ricans, not too many, a large Mexican contingent, Mexican, Mexican-American, all Spanish-speaking. So first-generation immigrant, usually older, though much older, I would say 40 to 60 in the age range. And they're there to become armed, to defend the faith against maybe young people, right? Maybe their their uh, sons and daughters who've left. They're um, uh, defended against an, a, a godless uh, culture that's lost its way. Uh, so definitely, I, I agree with you there. I, I see an older contingent of primary first-generation immigrants from a variety of different perspectives, but mostly Pentecostal, evangelical, coming to places like uh, Azusa Pacific Seminary uh, to arm themselves. Uh, some of them are coming to learn for the sake of learning and intellectual enlightenment, but mainly I think evangelical seminaries operate at least this way that I can see, maybe among certain ethnicities as well, 
as a apologetics center, as a way to combat things, um, and as a way to arm themselves, if you will, to, to, be, to be prepared for things. Uh, I think liberal Protestant seminaries maybe operate in a different way, right, in terms of the, um, what it is that they're trying to protect. I think all of these places are trying to protect a certain amount of goods, a certain amount of intellectual cachet that they've built up. But, uh, yeah, so I agree with you. I've seen that. I've just seen it among older people. I don't know uh, of what age group you're looking at, but I've seen it amongst mostly older folks who view it as kind of a, an honor that they think God called them to do it, that this is what they should be doing, and that they're doing it to defend the faith that they view as under attack. So they've really bought into the entirety of the narrative that suggests that Christians in the United States are under attack. And so going to a conservative seminary is a way for them to break, to help. My last question for this would be uh, something that you just hinted a bit of, you know, older individuals kind of like defending the faith from a younger generation, probably within their own families, and, and something that you said at the beginning about your research path uh, within your own, like exploring your own family. And yeah. it's one, one of the things I talk about that maybe among especially a lot of Latinx people who are becoming secular have a lot of religious families. They don't have to be Catholic. They could be Pentecostal. They could be uh, mm -hmm. any, any other type of Christian normally. Uh, and so I make this argument that you know, the new atheism kind of rhetoric is not very appealing to them because you don't want to call your family members like they're idiots or you don't want to insult them. Or you, so, so I argue that secularism among Latinos is very different from you know, these white male elite, uh, intellectual yeah. elite that, that yeah. it forms the, the new ACS core. And so my question to you is, uh, in your experience doing all this research, how do Pentecostal Latinos and Latinos who are not Catholic negotiate their relationship with certainly the family that they still have that are Catholic and uh, and even maybe strains of families that have been probably four generations now Pentecostal, and they still have a lot of families who are Catholic. Uh, it really depends. The If I was going to make a, a generalization, I would say that the initial break away from Catholicism is, is viewed as something that's kind of a, a rupture of the, the familial and cultural norm. And so those people are not viewed as, they're almost traitors. Right? Uh, are you still going to church? Are you still going to get married? What about the kids? Uh, all these familial concerns come up right away. And for Pentecostals, the idea is, well, I can't go do that anymore. We can't go to a, do a rosary anymore. We can't. All these kind of conventional ideas about what Catholics do, right? Whether or not they actually do it or not is a separate story. But again, a lot of people have been kind of washed with this idea that Catholicism is one thing, and particularly Latino Catholicism does works itself out in a particular way. Uh, it's, it's filled with a lot of tension, to be honest with you. Um, uh, the zeal of the first-generation convert to Pentecostalism is to get all of your family converted. And so many of them tell me that, that it's a, pro it's a point of pride for them, that, well, yes, I became a Christian, and they always call themselves that, they don't call themselves Pentecostal. I became a Christian, and uh, uh, my family was very resistant, but I wore them down, and God worked on them. There's a script. There's kind of a narrative script, and it's like, and now they're all Christians. 
See, because and it's self-validating. Obviously, it validates the fact that they they kept it up, they kept going, the persistence of faith, the persistence of keeping uh, this before their family, and and again, whether the entire family converted, whether that's true, you know, you don't know. But Pentecostalism, as I argue in my new book, which we have to plug, um, is um, of course. <laughs> is uh, is about stories. It's about stories, right? Pentecostalism, Pentecostals tell great stories, right? And so these awesome stories of like, oh, my family's not converted. We're all we all don't do drugs. We're all great. Everything's going wonderfully. I mean, it's it's a victory to victory. It's constant, right? And it's very consistent. the The narrative structure of these stories is so consistent. It's and um, and so it it becomes harder to deal with when you have family members who are just not that quote-unquote into religion, who are viewed as culturally Catholic, who are lapsed Catholic, and all these other kind of terminology that you want to use to describe Catholicism. Um, so it, it forms this this problem. As the years go by, I would love to see a, a longitudinal study of this, is how do those relationships mend? I would argue that they do mend. I would argue that, that you just become used to it. We have We've had family members who leave, uh, who've left who become Baptists, very, very conservative Baptists, not Pentecostal. Um, and, you know, still see them at Christmas, still see them at Easter. It's not a big deal. Um, you know, we know that they're different, <laughs> quote-unquote, and we knew that they were different when, when we were small. Uh, but, you know, we're all much older now, you know, and so we just kind of like it's a live and let live type of a thing where we don't, um, uh, you know, it it's, could be a stereotype, but it's this idea, I, I believe, there are different models of significance that Latinos latch onto, right? And one of them is family. So, uh, as long as we're okay, familial-wise, as long as we're okay, you know, me and you, um, it's fine. You know, you go to your church, I go to mine. Uh, you live your life, I live mine. There is a kind of, you know, a allowance for religious difference uh, once you get past the initial shock. Of, of this. But I would argue that that's true in you know, Latinos who become Buddhist, Latinos who become Hindu, Latinos who become Muslim. Now, the question is Latinos who are openly secular, uh, who make a, a, essentially a, a statement to that effect, saying, I'm an atheist, or I am secular, or, or whatever people choose to call themselves. How those relationships are navigated, I think, is, is different. I may be wrong. I may be wrong, but I think maybe after the initial shock or resistance, is there a, a, a winnowing away of that resistance to kind of live and let live, or is there still, are there still problems along those paths? It's a good question. It really does. Well, Professor Sanchez Walsh, I would like to thank you for coming to the show. This has been You're welcome. great. We have reached the end of this particular episode, but I want to remind all of you to subscribe to the podcast, and if you subscribe, rate it and review it, especially on iTunes. Uh, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. It will be until next week. This is Juem Navarro Rivera. And Luciano Gonzalez.